now. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the How to Be Unpopular podcast. This is a three-way Skype conversation. I am Todd, and I also have Joey on and Jake. Jake, what's your last name? Bonds. Bonds? Bands. Bands. Barnes, Todd. Barnes. Jake Barnes, yes. From Australia, correct? My last name is Barnes. Barnes, yes. Jake Barnes. Jacob Barnes. 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 <laughs> it's chowder. Say it right. Who do they think I am? Some Aussie drongo. <laughs> okay. So, first, before we begin, um, I just want to just kind of read a message that I got on Facebook. Um, and I won't say who it's from, but I'm going to read the message. It says, why ask all these questions of it's nothing or something? It's something good for me and the people I skate with because it's just fun to us. We get to hang out without our jobs, wives, and GFs getting in the way for a little while and having fun. Why question it over and over on what it is or means to be a rollerblader? To me, it just seems like the past few podcasts are just rollerblade bashing and plain embarrassment for being a rollerblader. Just my opinion. These are becoming downers to listen to. Take it or leave it. I'm sure you don't care anyway. So I haven't really prepared a response to this message, but... I've been I've been feeling a certain way, and it kind of inspired me to write just a little thing. I like like I said, it's not a it's not a response to this. It's just a reflection of how I've been feeling. And first and foremost, I want people to know that I'm extremely extremely positive about rollerblading. I think rollerblading is a force to keep this global group motivated, inspired, healthy, and progressing but also to destroy egos through physical pain, social mockery, lack of intrinsic reward, lack of extrinsic rewards like money and fame, subsequently learning trades like video production, photography, web development, marketing, graphic design, because nobody is going to give anything to us and nobody is going to do anything for us. We don't need anyone to tell us to do what we do. We each invent our own curriculums. We're connected globally. We're far from reaching our full potential, far from knowing who we are. We don't know what we're doing. We're simply following an inner, we're following an inner calling. At times, it may be confusing and depressing to realize you've poured so much energy into this, but that is a part of our journey, to realize that it's all about the doing. Getting good, falling off and getting good again, getting injured, recovering, then getting injured again, feeling inspired and passionate, then getting jaded, cynical and losing that passion, then regaining that love, becoming superhuman, becoming superhuman through a rollerblading trick and then going to work at a video store or going to flip burgers, zero encouragement from the outside, feeling uh, feet sweating because you're lying in bed imagining the tricks you're going to do strapping in and being reminded that you're human and doing the things you've been imagining are very difficult and you are not Richie Eisler Following in, falling into habits doing the same shit over and over with moments of innovation saturating the inter interwebs with our efforts even though nobody cares my cat has more views than any rollerblading edit the word rollerblading is a punchline, 
Cultures who despise us, who despise us have grown into powerful corporations while we've been locked up in the basement. While they drink champagne, fuck porn stars, and gorge on fried chicken, while getting drunk on fame and admiration, we lift weights and steal their Wi-Fi to get blasted on inspiration our peers send us for free. We are the undead, we are zombies. No wonder these cultures hate us, fear us, are disturbed by our presence. We've been crucified, burned, and buried six feet under, yet our output, yet our output continues to increase. We've done infinitely more as zombies than we ever did with our short-lived days above ground. In conclusion, I say thank you to the universe for showing me rollerblading and for what, whatever it is that keeps me motivated to be a blader. And thank you to everybody else who puts wheels under their feet and is open to the magic that doing so can bring into, into their life. Thanks to everybody who stabs me in the front. Thanks to my armpits and my ass for sweating profusely. Thank you to, the, to my body for tolerating the punishment I've given it. And thanks to the negativity, anger, frustration, embarrassment, pain, and failure in me and projected upon me by my peers for fueling me. So Joey and, uh, and Jake are, are hanging out over Skype, and now that I've barfed all that bullshit out, we can talk about whatever we want. So what's on your mind, Joey? Uh, well, that was one hell of a response you said you didn't prepare a response but i mean that i heard that but it wasn't a direct response it's just some bullshit that just like i said just came out of me well i was worried with the last uh podcast i mean first first vine street todd and then, <laughs> <laughs> i just uh i don't want to feel threatened when we talk openly on a free podcast about some bullshit related to rollerblading. So, uh, I mean, I'm glad that you addressed that, but it it's going to be part of the podcast. Negative things are going to come up that might rub people the wrong way. It's their it's their choice whether they want to listen to a free podcast or not. Yeah, and the way I think on the the negativity is there's no doubt that all of us love rollerblading, and the paradox is the more that we love it, the more that we want from it, the more that we expect from it. So, if you see ways where things could be better or where you would like things to go, of course, you're going to talk about those. That's just natural. You know, it's like if you're in a relationship with someone and you never argue, you never fight, well, it's probably not as good as it could be. Wow. That's true. That's very true. Holy shit. And then talk about it to make things better or, and it makes it a positive thing to talk about things in a negative light that you feel are could be better or could be improved or or it just just being honest about how we feel that's what this podcast is about and and uh that that's where its power is that's when it's at its best i think is when people are just straight up being honest i find it weird that people can read negative comments like through text all day but then as soon as they hear like a human voice speaking something like maybe a little bit more eloquently and openly and honestly that that that's more threatening than reading like a hundred negative comments i just don't understand that yeah but whatever uh, it's it's a lot more it it puts you in that 
frame of mind a lot more and it can be a lot more disturbing to hear people say the words as opposed to just reading them because it's coming from a human being and you take on that experience vicariously like you live through the person talking and having that conversation and and i've experienced it when i'm listening to podcasts and there's things that people are talking about and i'm having my own internal thoughts and i want to pipe in but but i'm not there to to take part for something to stay interesting i read a quote you have to increase its complexity so of course if you've been rollerblading and watching videos for almost 20 years you're going to, I don't know, you're going <laughs> to, negative things are going to come up, especially if, if it's a podcast centered around watching edits. You're, have you guys ever, uh, have you guys ever thought of having people call in? That would be amazing. That would be, yeah, I've thought of that. That would be sweet. We should do that. Can you do that on Skype? Yeah. As long as there are contacts with you on Skype, we could, I guess we could do a night, we could advertise it and say, uh, uh, on this night, we'll we'll be taking Skype calls, and then whoever wants to call in can just call in. Perfect. Well, let's do that. Yeah, let's do. That. Um, okay, so let's just jump off right here. I know uh, Todd Todd and I talked about this, but um, the first topic, Jacob, the blading cup. Uh huh. Um, just that word alone. Your experience of watching the the show over YouTube, unless you caught it on TV. I, I, I didn't catch it on TV. When they brought it out on YouTube, I just downloaded like all seven parts or whatever it was and watched it then. Um, I did hear the podcast that you guys did when you were talking about Blading Cup, and I agree to some extent with a lot of uh, what you said, Todd. Us having been around skating for a long time, and seen it rise and seen it fall, the way in which it was presented just looked very, very old-fashioned. And if I were one of the younger skaters today, one of the one of the kids who has only been into it for you know four years, six years, and you know wasn't even born back when uh, skating was rising in the in the mid '90s. I'd feel kind of offended because what was being represented is not what rollerblading is today. What was being that what that what you saw on the blading cup? Yeah. And is that is that an age thing? Do you think uh, rollerblading, like as a product, is only still marketed to a very specific demographic? And um... it's, it's probably just because of the the people who were putting it together. Um, I mean, John Julio, I have nothing but the greatest respect for him. He is the man getting it done and has been for, you know, a decade now, let alone skating, you know, the way he skates for, what, 20 years now. Yeah. So he's the guy in a position to, to make that event happen and to put it together. I have utmost respect for that. But um, even just watching, like, the first couple of minutes of it, you know, the first thing that pops up was the ASA logo. Second thing that pops up was Arlo uh, doing the commentary. Um, and it seemed like he was doing it in pretty much the same style that he used to do the ASA contests, the way that he was the, doing the commentary. And then it's like, oh, let's go take a look at the history of rollerblading. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. Like, you're all of a sudden you're showing clips here that went down like 15 years ago. 
how how is this how is this bringing back what rollerblading is to people who either have never experienced it before or to people who want to experience something different to the way that it was done in the late 90s and i, I didn't really see that happening yeah yeah it um it appeared to me as a, aggressive skating just looked incredibly niche and very specific the kind of the show which is fine but um definitely what we know of rollerblading is so much bigger than that and then, i mean the skater profiles they try to do a better job of, of showing rollerblading as a more expanded thing but um did it seem uh inclusive or do you think someone outside of rollerblading would understand the technical nuances of, of the tricks and things like that um I don't think it's very hard for them to do that at all. I mean, if you ever watched the, the X Games footage or the ASA footage where they used to do those little segues where they would explain the tricks to you, oh, like, yes. oh, this is what this means and what we're doing here is sliding on this part of the skate. I don't really think people need that. They're going to pick up as much of it as they want to pick up. Yeah. It's, not, it's not that they can't understand that... Uh, you know, that a fast slide is harder than a soul grind. It's not that they can't understand that. For the most part, I don't think they care. But if they do care, they're going to work it out for themselves very, very easily. I just didn't see a whole lot that was different than the way that it was done, say, even even the first X Games. Like, if you... Were you guys around? Did you remember watching, like, the first X Games? Yeah, Ryan Jacklone. Uh-huh. Um, Matt Salerno won it. Matt Salerno won it doing, I guess, what you could call spins and flips rather than, like, quote-unquote, real street skating. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of the guys who were popular at the time who participated in the event but didn't necessarily get themselves on the television, you know, didn't make the finals or weren't being pushed by ESPN or whatever. But... Um, I mean, they were they were really really fancy fancy. <laughs> there were really technical tricks being thrown down there. I mean, I even remember some of the the VG3 footage, like Dave Payne had been out filming on the course or whatever. And I mean, you know, there were guys doing 270 backslides. You see Steve Thomas try like a like a like a 270 topside sole or a 360 sole, whatever you want to call it. So there were guys pushing it way back then. And maybe we just didn't take that cue that, like, the audience that you're presenting rollerblading to here, which is the general public or anyone on the other side of a TV set, they really don't care about that as much as they care about the jumps, the spins, the flips, the acrobatic style. And I'm not necessarily saying that's what you have to show them if you're going to make a TV show out of a rollerblading contest. I mean, it wasn't even that they. It wasn't even that they showed like like twenty first century rollerblading, if that makes any sense. The guys that have been popular in the last five years, the last ten years, as far as the skaters themselves are concerned, they weren't even really presented. I never really thought of it that way. So, um, it was almost like rollerblading just kind of maybe dressed up a little bit more modern. 
I, I just got the impression that they were showing the old guard, they were showing the older generation and not yeah. showing the guys <laughs> that, that would represent what rollerblading is today. Yeah. Well, do you think this is more of a, an issue with the format of television? Like, do you think it's possible to, to show rollerblading in an honest way on television? Like, do you think that, that it's an archaic form of media? Well, the right. funny thing is, this, this was my thought. I'm sorry if I'm rambling here. No, go for it. No. The funny thing is, is that, I mean, John Julio was one of the main guys, if not the main guy, who put the IMYTA together. And all these negative things that I'm saying about the Blading Cup, the IMYTA was the answer to those. You know, The way that it was created, the way that it was envisioned, all that was genius. All that was brilliance. So... To revert back to an ASA-style contest, you know, in 2012, just didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, because and I think the guys winning the IMYTAs, you know, Broskow, Farmer, Happy, whoever, are the guys you're seeing them in their element, and you're seeing them not only doing what they do best, but doing stuff they may not have even done before. So yeah. fast forward to 2012, and. You know, there's a spine ramp in the middle of a course. When was the last time you saw? When was the last time you saw elite level rollerblading on a spine ramp? <laughs> yeah. That's that's what I'm saying though. The last time you saw it was probably in like the X Games or an ASA contest, like 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. So it's not really representing like what skating is today or what skating could be moving forward it's more a representation of the past and i know this is cynical of me to say but it's a representation of what was the problem and not what could be the solution very true that so what do you think the solution could be in terms of uh if rollerblading had a chance to put together a television show um do you think something more in the direction of a of a street contest then something like the IMYTA you guys should do something like kids in the hall that would be awesome oh fuck <laughs> I would love to do a mushroom blading television show and you could just show all the edits that you're talking about on the TV screen while you're talking about them exactly <laughs> yeah why does it need to be a contest that I think the idea of a contest is pretty old-fashioned and and it kind of uh limits what's possible in a lot of ways well that was um i mean there was a lot of controversy behind you stepping away from pop contest todd but wasn't that pretty much the root the reason of that that um rollerblading contests are very difficult to uh, have celebrate all kinds of rollerblading the freedom they really yeah. suppress like human freedom and people really expect a certain thing from a contest and it's just very one-dimensional there's definitely people who excel in that environment and skating can be presented in a good way but then there's some people who don't like to skate in them and and it, it would be hard to integrate that all into one thing yeah. and i think there's a lot of of there's there's a lot of talent in rollerblading in terms of like working very intimately with a filmer and skating in a way that you're you're performing and i just don't think a contest is the best format to to show that that performance aspect that like it can capture some performance things but 
it can be so much more intimate and revealing when it's very one-on-one, -on -one, like with a filmer and a, and a rollerblader doing a certain thing as opposed to everyone just going for this very generic goal of skating the best and then we film it from a distance. I mean, it is fun to watch and, and I did enjoy a lot of the skating from it. I'm just hypersensitive when I feel like they're just trying, they're trying really hard to make rollerblading look marketable. That bucks me because we don't need to try hard to be anything. We're, we're pretty awesome as we are and when we try to be something that we're totally not, then we look lame. And it's the same things that, uh, that like old school skateboarders will say about modern skateboarding. It's the same conversation that, uh, you know, we don't feel like, like our vision or, or the way that we see rollerblading, this is, this is blasphemous and this is, it's gross and it's not a fair representation and it's just trying to get money or corporate sponsorship or whatever it is. What, uh, Jacob, what do you think is really working uh, either in that Blading Cup show or um, Chris Haffey and Nitro Circus? I mean, I could segue into the the SSM edit where the skier was skating. Oh, oh yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't want to take away from Blading Cup because it's obvious that the guys that put in the effort to make that happen did a great deal of work. Absolutely. They're all guys who are professionals and at the, at the top of what they do. And the level of skating in it was very, very high as well, given that most of those guys probably haven't skated a setup like that in quite a long time. Yeah. So yeah. I don't want to take away from any of that. It was more just the, the, the image or the 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 storyline that was kind of you know that that was the foundation and all that action was put on top of it it was the storyline that i didn't yeah really yeah get didn't, much of didn't they but try i don't, I don't want to take away i don't i don't want to say like that the, the tricks were bad or the guys didn't skate well or anything they skated i mean all that was insane you know? yeah and it always is i don't i don't want to take away from the level of ability or the level of talent that all of those people have because yeah, it's better than it's ever been. And for me to try and compare that to like X Games in 95 is laughable. Yeah, I get it. But um, but if that same storyline is there and that's the storyline that didn't have a future, you know, 15 years ago. So that, <laughs> that storyline, I wish I could uh, pull it up right now, but it was that the tricks were unrefined they only had a few tricks and it was too early to be on television or something like that but now we're great and we're ready kind of well, that... apparently... I, just don't, I don't get that i don't get that argument sorry <laughs> the, i don't get like the i just don't think rollerblading has progressed all that much apparently, where we could say okay. like, now we have a trick vocabulary like 15 years ago people were doing incredible shit that's true that's yeah, true. I mean, I too, I understand that it's not the same ramps and the same setup, but it was really hard for me to hear some people who had seen the Blading Cup footage and been like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's the, the most insane comp, park comp I've ever seen. 
and think, well, ha- hang on a second, like, did you not, did you not see what people were doing in the ASA comps in the late '90s and like the early 2000s? Yeah. Oh exactly. my God, so much amazing shit went down. Yeah, yeah. The, the level that guys like like Aaron Feinberg and Jaron Grob were skating at in park at that time. To see it, like you know, up close and personal, it, it was it was mind blowing. Yeah, it was a uh, a lot of a lot of good shit was in like the aggressive inline, like the intro of the aggressive inline video game had a lot of really good shit. It's weird that people forget those parts of rollerblading history. And what yeah. you were saying about comps a moment ago, um, and it kind of stifling a lot of creativity. Here I am, you know, talking about Jaron Grob and Aaron Feinberg, but a lot of the guys that didn't want to be in the spotlight or didn't want to be on the podium, they would go off and do this stuff by themselves, you know, in the corner when no one was watching and not make a show of it. And that stuff was even more incredible. (laughs) Oh, is that like stuff that would end up in videos, right? And not even that. Guys that just wanted to do it for their own. I mean, I... One thing that I loved about uh, getting to travel the US a little and skate a few of the different contests and a few of the different places was that Anywhere you went, you just got to see the most incredible ramp setups, the most insane ramp setups ever. And you'd be looking at it thinking, I want to try such and such a trick before I leave and before this is over because I might not see this. I might not see this line or this gap or whatever again. Yeah. So I think a lot of guys thought that way and they would go from one event to the next, one comp to the next, just wanting to fulfill their own goals and fulfill their own uh desires of i want to try this trick i want to land this i want to do this and then move on and it didn't care they didn't care whether they were on the television or getting prize money or not that was that was less important to them because they weren't going to do all that you know wcw stuff that a lot of the top pro guys were doing (laughs) i i haven't really thought about it that way um that skating just kind of adapts to whatever environment it's in and that the fish guys two edit was a really good example of like rollerblading adapting to more of a, a i guess quote unquote skateboard style park but some of those uh old asa parks with just a huge wall some of those uh feinberg runs where he was literally doing hammers for the entire run and keeping yeah. his speed Jeez. um there's not really any parks or any opportunities currently um for anyone to even try some of that stuff like concrete parks for the most part wouldn't have some of those massive old asa style obstacles and and jared grob while while we're on the subject he would be out the night before drinking twice as much as anyone right he wouldn't wouldn't get back to the hotel till like 2 a.m 3 a.m wake up in the morning hungover and out on the course, the announcers would be like, all right, Jared, it's your, it's your run. Where are you? Where are you? And it would take people three minutes to find him because he'd be standing up on top of a, a wall or a piece of, you know, coping or plywood, like 30 feet above the ground off in one corner of the course. And when it started, you just, you couldn't believe what you were seeing. He was the first guy to do the loop as well, right? People can say what they want about Jaron Grob, but I'll tell you for a fact, the stuff that he could do and was doing on a daily basis, no other person could touch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I really respect that style of skating. Even if they're skaters who I don't particularly like the tricks they're doing or don't particularly like their, their, their style or their choice, 
if they're the best at what they're doing, I'll respect that. Yeah. And I think to I think um, what what you both are saying is that what people were trying to achieve with Blading Cup, people did that way better in the '90s. The whole ASA, the like when rollerblading was on TV, it's been done and it was done way better than how it's done now. So you really can't to say that yeah to say that Blading Cup was the most insane part contest. That's ridiculous. Like we've already done it and we've done it way better and it really seems like we're trying to do it again, but we're that's not us anymore. We're different. Yeah. And so we have to do what we do best now instead of trying to do what we used to do best in the 90s and and kind of come across half ass or you know like and this was my point about the IMYTA. It seemed to me that all of that had been realized way back in whenever the first one was, like 2001, 2000. Yeah. All that had been realized then. It was as if it was as if John Julio and the guys around him had said, you know, we've done we've done the park contest thing as best we can to promote who we are and what we do. It hasn't worked, so we need to find some other way. We need to find some better way. And I really thought it was genius because the way that it developed it was so organic and it was so natural that all rollerbladers felt like they were a part of it all rollerbladers felt like it represented who they were and how they really felt and what they really did you know yeah it was there, why isn't there why isn't there still uh, an imyta or like a big street contest i know there's there's street contests that happen across the country but like a like one with all of the pros and like the the big the way IMYTA used to be like the world championship of street rollerblading. Why don't we have that? I I think and I this is kind of well educated guess more than me actually knowing, but I think that when it started, they were doing a lot of it just um, without permits, without permission, without any legitimacy to it at all, uh, and that worked for a while until whatever authorities worked out that it was the same guys you know putting the events on all the time and basically cracked down on those guys and said you need to do this legitimately or it's going to have to you know it's going to have to go down and all of a sudden they were trying to find places where they could like legally have the contests and you know oh we've got a permit from you know the university so it's okay for us to to skate here but that made things even worse so yeah the final nail in the coffin was they tried to make it IMYTA the movie, and it was like a filming permit, and then one of the spots sued for all the damages to the property. There you go. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, you have sense. to expect that because what we do, what we do by its very definition is illegitimate. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, we're vandals. That's what we do. I know when you're like 12, you can be like, Oh, what? Why? Why is this a crime? I'm just skating, but you know, destruction of property, liability—it just goes on and on and on. What we do, even if it doesn't cost us a whole bunch of money, it could potentially cost someone else uh, yeah. a fortune. So they're just not going to let it happen. But because roll betting is so underground anyway, and and people like oh, there's there's a lot of people who. They're not risking careers. I mean, it just seems like there's a way that we could pull that off in in a really 
uh, in a really ghetto, <laughs> underground kind of dangerous way, we yeah. could pull off an IMYTA. Like it might not be brought to you by SSM and Volo, but at its at its core, like these pros go out and skate street. Can't we create like a? Can't we do it just and well and be badasses and break the law? Yeah, you just can't have a, an organization putting on contests where there's guys in that organization who you know present themselves or identify themselves as oh yeah I'm the president of the IMYTA or yeah oh I'm the treasurer of the IMYTA because. Right. Those guys are just opening themselves up to legal action that's going to shut them down. Yeah, and you can't put it on TV. You can't get but corporate sponsorship. It can be done. Uh, this is this is one thing I've seen in a couple of uh, bike videos over the last few years. Um, you know, the professional riders or the guys who are riders and company owners, you know, with some kind of legitimacy behind them, will get in touch with, you know, the local councils or the local governments of you know rundown towns ghost towns towns that a lot of the the industry and a lot of the uh, uh community have moved out of and they'll just go into these old abandoned practically condemned buildings and just make spots out of them just go in there you know move some sheets of plywood around move some uh <laughs> you know hacksaw this hammer that back a little bit and make just random spots out of these decrepit you know practically practically condemned falling to the ground buildings yeah it, it at least gives it that badass vibe but the, the the real point i'm making there is you get yourself around the the legalities or the the legitimacy of it by literally going to the government of that town who has some jurisdiction over that building and saying why don't you let us go and do this there yeah um, I thought the Blading Cup did a good job on... I can't remember if they showed skating clips of Nick Wood or not. Did they when he was talking about that he built the ramps? I don't think like, so. I, I don't, don't remember. remember. Yeah, I don't um, think so. I, I thought that that was kind of a cool thing that the Blading Cup did right, is that they showed that a rollerblader had... I think it was Damien Wilson and Nick Wood They had shown that they had built the course. Yeah. And that was a really nice detail, um, but where it could have had more of the grassroots feel um, existing in like the ASA big competition structure with cheering, it tried to be almost two things at once. But I do think showing that Rollerbladers yeah. built the course was an important... Uh, um, I, I don't mean to take away from, from those dudes or the work they do, but it looked to me like a lot of those ramps were leftovers from contests a long time ago that's so, what it was then hey they 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 must have done a whole bunch of work you know getting the course as a whole set up but i don't think they built a lot of that from scratch no okay so, but Who i'm not taking away from them i'm just saying that it wasn't necessarily like oh yeah we built all of this this is this is contemporary you know <laughs> I mean, rollerbladers are notorious for... all, all those ramps looked like they were straight out of a NIST contest <laughs> I think they were the old NIST ramps I think oh. they were um, rollerbladers are notorious for not really building anything 
<laughs> Don't we just like find the spots that skateboarders have paved little things and everything, and we just go skate those? We steal. <laughs> In one part, it's the beauty of skating. You know, it's very, very easy to get yourself a pair, and it's very, very easy to, you know, set aside you know four hours to go skating and literally be doing tricks for like you know three and a half of those hours. Um, you speak to bike riders. You know, a lot of them will spend all week making uh you know making trails and making dirt jumps and then just ride them on the weekend but like every spare hour they can get during the week they're they're building the jumps they're tending to the trails there <laughs> what those guys are very very protective of their trails as well because they're the ones doing all the work they don't want yeah. people showing up who are just going to ride the place and destroy it and leave because to them building is as much the reward in riding a bike as actually doing the tricks and hitting the jumps. But yeah, I agree with you. It's something in rollerblading you don't see a whole lot of. People who are willing to like make their own ramp, make their own spot, make their own obstacles and then hit that stuff. I, I can't remember if we discussed this on the last podcast or not, but what is it about that separation still like from Jaron Grobe to... Uh, like Sean Robertson, Matt Salerno, um, Feinberg was kind of a weird crossover between the two worlds. But um, even currently with some of these really amazing European skaters, um, there's CJ Wellsmore, that like being really good at uh, like ramp skating and jumps and Stefano Fano is another one. Um, what is it about why do street skaters and this ramp skating thing why has there always just been a split between those two worlds? <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, all right. Um, this is going to take a while, but I'll see if I can answer the question. <laughs> okay. One of the big differences between uh, rollerblades and bikes uh, is the wheelbase that you're balancing on. Now, if you get yourself on a bicycle and you're just learning how to ride, you know, you might mess up, you might fall over but you're probably not going to overbalance forwards and backwards. Whereas on rollerblades, that's what happens all the time. That's what you're fighting all the time. You're either going to overbalance forwards or you're going to overbalance backwards. Yeah. Anytime you get into what I would call transition skating, and that's not necessarily park skating because most of the council parks, the public parks that we skate these days are designed for skateboarding. So it's not really transition. It's a lot of wedge and it's a lot of quarter pipes that might go to 45 degrees. It's not the same as getting yourself bio, getting yourself, you know, horizontal and having to land on something when you, when you come down. Um, and I think that's the biggest difference between what you would call transition skaters and what you would call street skaters on rollerblades. There are a lot of street skaters that are incredibly talented at the variations and the technical skill and the creativity and yet you can watch their edits you can watch their sections and they never get themselves away from that vertical stance they never get themselves away from coming down feet first and balancing on the skates because they've been in that stance the whole time and it's entirely different from hitting, you know, a quarter pipe and flying off it on a weird angle and doing, you know, either some bio spin or some flip in the middle of it and then having to land on another quarter pipe where it's also 
you know, a vertical transition, but on a totally different angle and maybe like 12 feet that way. And all of that takes a, a, an entirely different kind of skill instead of being as creative and as technical as far as grind variations is concerned, you're more acrobatic and you're more, you're more aggressive. Maybe, I don't know. You're, <laughs> you're really, you're really using that, that, that forceful energy to, to throw yourself into this and to, it's hard to explain. It, it's a different style. The reason it's hard to explain is because rollerbladers today don't really have a whole lot of experience of that. And it sucks that there isn't more footage of these guys on the internet because I talk about Sean Robertson all the time. I talk about the stuff that he, that I, that I saw him do in the late nineties all the time. I go on yeah. the internet, I can hardly find anything. Yeah. And that's uh... to back up the things that you saw guys, Sean Robertson, Joe Ackler, John Bergeron, the things you saw these guys doing and it just, it boggles your mind. I'd already been skating for, you know, six or eight years at that time. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I couldn't believe that it was humanly possible for these guys to be doing what they were doing. Yeah. And that's where my appreciation for say Matthew Ledeau comes in because a lot of what you see him doing, especially in uh, the park edits that really, you know, blew me away. It doesn't make sense that a person should be able to do that and come down and roll away from it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. In a lot of ways, that difference comes from the difference in environment. Like if you look at yeah. the people in the 90s, there were a lot more of these like bigger wooden uh, skate parks. Like we even had them. We had our CAT, which were like ASA street courses with big vert ramps and big fly boxes with, with launches that were pretty much quarter pipes that sent you in a very unique orbit. Um, and now we're all we're all skating like little skateboard skateboard parks and street and the skating really reflects that and you're right there aren't a lot of sean robertson robertson's there aren't a lot of matt salernos and and like feinberg's a special case because he was one person who was able to excel on those big parks and also excel on street and you don't see a lot of those people anymore i think because of the environment that we have yeah um i i love the fact that here in america the councils the local governments have really gotten on board with creating skate parks and creating places uh for us to go i do think that the designs favor either younger skaters or uh skaters who have you know less ability so to speak they don't want they don't want a professional course because they're trying to build this for the local community, for the local kids. So the park has to suit the local kids. Yeah. And after a while, even though you're going to different parks, you start realizing that it's just the same old park over and over again. Yeah. Um, I've got to say, though, there's some exceptions to that. These guys up in uh, Oregon, Dreamland Skate Parks, most of the parks that uh, that these guys are going to on the, on the Shred Till You're Dead tours are built by this one company in Oregon and they really go above and beyond as far as huge transitions, huge bowl sections, lots of like uh, pipes and oververt bowls and capsules and such. So um, it's encouraging to see that. Do I think it'll, you know, reignite 
rollerbladers doing you know incredible stuff not so much i mean i saw the recent uh shred to your dead video and there were a couple of good there were a couple of good clips here and there but for the most part i don't think the guys were using the the potential that a lot of those parks had no there were, there was that one snake run kind of part with bailey and and stockwell that really stood out for me the the ones that stand out for me are the ones up in idaho um and there were a couple of good lines in the latest shred movie i think it was eric bailey and chris haffey did a couple of things and i was like yeah it really makes you want to go to that park you know whereas a lot of the clips i saw in the latest one i was kind of like oh i can skip that and the park might be great but just the clips that you've seen you you don't really you're not inspired to drive all the way there and check it out yourself yeah if you if you compare it to what people were doing on that type of terrain in the 90s like uh or even the yasutokos what they're doing now like the yasutokos jaren grob like how they used to use those huge ramps was so different than how the top roll butters use them now it's like the top roll butters now use them in a really kind of street way where they're doing like a lot of technical grinds and and carving them really smoothly and it is impressive but it's nothing in comparison to how like even Latimer the way he would use a lot of the big ramps like just doing stuff that was on such a higher amplitude yeah. and and I guess yeah, just very different I guess there's one one idea I should mention here is that one big difference is that in the late 90s if you were like elite level park skater there was an opportunity there for you to make money doing so I mean, Aaron Feinberg, Jaron Grob, those guys won a lot of prize money being that good. So that was a motivation. Yeah. Whereas if you look at it today, there really isn't that same, that same money to motivate you being that good at that style of skating. Um, yeah. if, if you're going to make money in rollerblading today, you're going to make it through a boot sponsor and probably through sales of a, of a professional model skate. So as horrible as it sounds, perhaps you're going to start thinking to yourself, well, I need to skate and present my abilities in such a way that makes the greatest number of people buy my skates. Yeah. Because, I mean, you, you have to pay the bills. If you, if you don't want to have to go and get a second job somewhere, if you just want to skate, if you just want to you know, be a professional skater and give it all you've got, then perhaps you're doing all this crazy stuff outside of the filming and outside of the cameras, but when it comes to an edit that you would present to the community, your motivation is, well, I need to sell as many skates as possible, so I'm gonna do all the stuff that, quote unquote, the kids wanna see me do, and the stuff that they can imitate on some level, and that's gonna make them wanna buy my skate. Yeah. That was pretty obvious to me back in the late 90s is that you had like Matt Salerno on one end and Josh Petty on the other. And it was, well, all the kids that are actually buying rollerblade skates, they want to skate like Josh Petty. They don't want to skate like Matt Salerno. Yeah. So, But then Matt Salerno still had that motivation to skate the way he does. Well, there was, there was still that opportunity and it's an opportunity that just isn't there today. That's right. But the point I'm making about about josh petty for example is that because all the kids wanted to skate like him and wanted to buy his skate then it wasn't in his interests to go and try and skate like matt salerno unless he was going to win the money 
because I mean, if you watch his uh, his VG7 profile, for example, there's just enough tricks there on transition and on the the ASA courses and the X Games courses for you to see that he can do that. He can be that guy. It's not that he can't do those tricks. It's just not going to help when it comes to selling yourself to the community and making money through the rollerblading companies rather than through, you know, ESPN or Slim Jim or whatever. And Aaron Feinberg's probably a great example of that too because it's almost like he did it the other way around. He went and skated just as good as Matt Salerno, if not better, but then he wanted to rise to the top in the actual, you know, uh, rollerblading community where he was making money from the skaters themselves, where he was impressing them and making them buy his skates and his products as opposed to just being, you know, the kid in the helmet that was going to win the ASA contests. Yeah. Aaron Feinberg, actually, there was a, uh, in a Daily Bread list, he said something about Matt Salerno stealing all of his prize money. <laughs> <laughs> There's that run that, uh, it, the video evolution i think it was tj weber's video on youtube you can look it up there's a run that matt salerno does do you remember this run todd and it's to that the beatles it's, song uh, baby you're right yeah and the cardio that you would have needed to do that run it was incredible it was like two minutes of skating full speed in 540s <laughs> <laughs> It was incredible. It was an incredible feat of like, yeah, endurance. Yeah. That. I don't know if anybody could match that today. Like he had that. He could spin both ways really well, and he would do basic grinds, but he would do them. Like there was no stalling. He, he maybe did, I think, a fast plant to fish brain stall, but even then, instead of just doing a fish brain stall, he did a fast plant to it and kind of made it look quicker. That he oh, didn't yeah. really stop during the run, yeah, which is amazing. And I got to give it to the Australians again. That uh, um, best trick battle edit that just was on Rolls oh, yeah. recently. Yeah, um, and I was very very impressed. To uh, that was the exact style of skating that we were talking about. Um, there was an amazing display. I don't know who that. I hadn't heard of the guy who won it, but the 720 and then the 900. Uh huh. Yep. Incredible. Yeah. Have you? What park is that? Um, it's in it's in Canberra. Yeah. It's uh it's called Belconnen. I haven't skated it like that though. Back last time I skated it, it looked very very different. Um, it still had that big like cereal bowl looking thing with the roll in leading into it, but um, all the rest of the park, all the red section and the you know that really nice flowy transition section, I haven't skated any of that. I don't think I can. I've never skated a park or seen a park that has almost what looks like it's like two big fly boxes made out of concrete. <laughs> yeah, that that really went uh, balls out on that one. I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming it's for bike riders because I can't imagine they would build that, assuming that you know skateboarders were going to hit it or that there were enough rollerbladers to to build it for. But yeah, it's incredible, incredible looking looking park. I know they have a lot of money in uh, in Canberra as far as the government is concerned for, you know, public programs and all that kind of stuff. So they probably had a budget like nowhere else in Australia has ever seen for building that park. Um, but, yeah, it looks really good. The, the SSM 
Tahoe edit with the with the uh -huh. gear. Yeah. Um, what did you think about that? I was really excited. I thought that was going to be a, a really good thing. So I I'd heard a little talk that um, that Brian Chima had sent uh, the two guys that make the the B and E show edits uh, skates. So I'm like, oh great, this is going to be awesome. I want to see I want to see how like you know elite free skiers would adapt what they do on skis onto onto skate. Um, so when the edit came out, I'm like, oh, cool, this is it. So I went and I had a look. It seemed to me as though they, they only showed clips of like one guy on the skates. Um, it seems to me as though he was a rollerblader back in the 90s. That was kind of the impression I got from like two or three clips of his that they put in the video. Um, and it wasn't really him adapting anything that he would do on skis onto a pair of skates it was just him reminiscing about what he used to do on skates you know like 15 years ago yeah boy is that the theme for this podcast um <laughs> so it, but it was it's he, he even did a sidewalk yeah <laughs> and, he had, and he had chicken wings <laughs> chicken wings oh the chicken wings elbows <laughs> I forgot about the chicken wings. On he what? Like chicken tonight. <laughs> chicken wings. It was like it's like the way you would hold your arms. For oh, okay, like the Latimer stance. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, so anyway, long story short, I just got the impression that you know, sometime in the mid '90s, he had been rollerblading a little bit. Um, whether or not he's kept that up at all while being a skier, I don't know, but. Um, I don't mean to take anything away from the guy. If uh, if you pay any attention at all to uh, free skiing, this guy's like like one of one of, if not the style god at the moment. And everything really? you watch of everything you watch of his on skis, it looks incredible. Is it Phil Casabon? Yeah. Is that the name? Yeah. Him and him and another guy basically just go out and film each other and put edits together and. Uh, you know, it's very creative, it's very progressive, and I know very little about skiing, and yet it's really, really enjoyable to watch. In cool. the same way that you would hear people say that about, you know, watching Dion Anthony skate or watching Dustin Latimer skate. They don't need to know anything about rollerblading to really enjoy watching those guys skate. Definitely. So that's why I was so keen to see, all right, how is this guy going to bring that onto a pair of rollerblades? Uh, but that didn't really happen that so what is that a wheelbase like let's just say he had a, like a wheelbase that felt more like skis would he be more inclined to do some crazy launch stuff next question <laughs> <laughs> okay well i think bottom line is it takes a lot of effort to for, to get to a level where you can really express yourself on on rollerblades like even if you're really good at skiing, snowboarding, biking, whatever, or really athletic, it, it's still going to take you years to really develop your own voice on rollerblades. It's, 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 funny, it's a funny thing because it's easy, but it's very hard, I think, to get to a level where you can express something through it. I would assume the same about uh, skiing, though. Especially given that, I remember you guys talking about this in the last podcast, with skiing, you have more of a fixed position 
similar to what a bike rider has than what rollerblading has. You know, in rollerblading, you, you're not really fixed or you're not really set into any stance. Whereas with the skis, because of the length of them and yeah. because of the poles that you're holding, I imagine it would be far, maybe not, maybe not more difficult, but at least as difficult to get beyond just skill and talent on a pair of skis to a point where you had a distinctive style and people could be watching footage of you, you know, where you were like 40 feet, 50 feet away from the camera and know that it was, you know, a particular skier. Yeah. yeah. So that would be just as difficult. I, watching some of the ski stuff, um, I, I swear skiing is got their shit together like way more creative and smooth and stylish than it's what I imagine rollerblading should look a little bit more like but doesn't I don't know is that just me um I, th I think there's probably more of a natural flow and a natural rhythm to skiing downhill than there is to let's say rollerblading on flat ground because most yeah. most of our tricks revolve around the, the 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 foundation of skating on flat ground, and most yeah. of these tricks revolve around that foundation of you know skiing downhill. So you're using the hardware you've got, and you're using you know the mountain itself to get into a certain flow and a certain rhythm. That I mean, we we don't really have that in skating if you're just out on flat pavement hitting stairs and handrails you're right there are a lot of there are a lot of skaters that go out and find you know they, they find the terrain they find the the elements and the stuff that they want to do tricks on and it starts looking a lot more creative but a lot of that probably comes from you know finding a curved rail or finding a bank to a ledge that has you know a certain layout or a certain angle there that makes it more interesting than just flat ground and you know straight rails i love the um the butters is that what they call it butters you know like when they kind of like lean on lean in on the tips and oh, do okay, like yeah. kind of a swivelly thing into an air it's possible to kind of do that stuff on rollerblades but i swear the missing link in rollerblading technology is some kind of a a stopping system that feels like ice skates or speed control system that feels like ice skates and tricks would go crazy on on rollerblades if there was yeah, some yeah. kind of a how skiers can do those buttery like smooth turns into spins being able to adapt that into rollerblading would look and feel incredible is that possible do you think to make anything like that no <laughs> well i think uh, banana rocker really helps with that just being able to turn on a <laughs> you that's how to, Todd's renamed <laughs> Todd's reclaimed it or is it hockey rocker it's hockey rocker banana rocker that makes a big difference right, I think it's just, just rocker swiv swiveling abilities yeah rocker. that's true it yeah. makes a huge difference a, a good friend of mine Frank he's been skating on rocket skates forever and yeah. you can see it you know when you watch the clips of his and when you watch his style on skates you can see it is oh, there... while we're on the subject, yeah. while we're on the subject, there's a there's a clip I've been looking for for a really long time. So everyone listening to this, if you can find this clip, send it to me, and I will give you cash money. 
Um, when when the switch frames were brought out by uh, Rollerblade, there's a clip of uh, Julian Barr on the on the point eight skates with switch frames or whatever. And he's at a school and he comes around a corner and he hits a jump ramp, airs over a staircase, back royales a railing that's like 10 feet, 12 feet off the ground, and then like 540s off. Oh, was that in um, one of the footage tape, early footage tape maybe? I, I get the impression it was just released as like a YouTube edit to promote Rollerblade and to promote the TRS and stuff like that. Um, but any, if anyone has this, I would really, really like it because as awesome as the trick is, the cherry on top is the way that he rolls away from that trick. A lot of Julian Baugh's rolling stuff is really smooth because he always skated anti, or I mean, sorry, flat. So if he had the switch frame, what did he have in the middle? I'm going to guess it was the 7256, but I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think oh, I think Kevin Dowling Kevin would probably know. Probably know. But um, but I, I really really want to have that clip because I remember like putting it on replay and just watching it like fifty times and being like that is perfect <laughs> to be able to do something that incredible and yet roll away with that that smooth and with that much control that's incredible. Oh, and I think oh. it might have even been a way of promoting the fact that the frame was a combination of, you know, great rolling characteristics, but also the ability to grind, which is what we're all after. Right? <laughs> and what uh, is happening with um, bake frames, power blading. Right. Before we change subject again, though, there's okay. one more thing I want to say about the, uh, the free skiing edit. Yeah. One thing that might not be obvious to us as rollerbladers is that... Uh, the guy, uh, B-Dog, that was in the SSM edit, he and, his, he and his mate also put out edits of themselves all the time. And they put out an edit of that same trip to Woodward Tahoe, same day, same event. Interesting. When you go and find the edit that they put together of what happened that day, compare it to the edit that the SSM guys put together of what happened that day, you have two very different stories of the same basic event, the same basic thing. And it's interesting comparing and contrasting those two different stories and understanding what the relationship is between rollerblading and between free skiing. I get the impression that rollerblading really wants to imply that free skiing is pretty much doing the same thing that we've been doing for much, much longer and maybe even try and convert people to rollerblading, like make more people buy rollerblades. And yet when you look at the free skiing uh, side of the story, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. It's like, oh, we, we thought we'd put some skates on so we could hit the wooden ramp and practice our flips, but like they were more willing to go out onto the mountain even though there wasn't very much snow left and just find ways to do a few little tricks even though there wasn't much snow left. What is up with that? Very interesting. Because I've seen that in uh, the Lion Traveling Circus edits. Yeah. Rollerblades have shown up a couple times and they're more of a like a little jokey thing that they're trying. Well, what is up with that? A, 
skis and rollerblades are two entirely different pieces of hardware. I mean, anyone who's done rollerblading and ice skating will tell you that they're different. The way an ice skate handles and skates is very different to the way a rollerblade skates, even though the two are meant to be, you know, they're meant to provide the same action. And secondly, if you're a free skier, and especially if you're like a professional free skier, you're getting paid money and you have to present an image, you know, for kids to buy your stuff. You can't be seen with rollerblades on your feet. That shit's AIDS. <laughs> yeah. It's like career suicide if you're a free skier. So it's one thing for the SSM guys to be like, oh, look, you know, we've got a, a pro free skier on rollerblades and maybe it'll sell more. But I mean, the free skier is not going to jump up and down and say that. He, he can't even really let people see that. He can't make a big point of it. Yeah. So the question for me is, I always think about when I, when I use my skates or I'm just holding them and staring at them, rollerblades are still such a primitive technology. Aren't they? Um, there's, there's room for development. I mean, look at, look at the way bicycles used to be. Look at the way motorcycles used to be. Look at the way... I mean, anything you have that is technologically advanced it used to be primitive by comparison. Yeah. And I think maybe the reason that, that people like you and I can see it in, in skates and rollerblades is because, you know, we've, we've had at least one pair of these in our possession for 20 odd years and they pretty much look exactly the same. Yeah. Or worse. Yeah. <laughs> or worse. Yeah. Going through these old tapes, um, I still realize that some of my favorite pairs of skates are some of, your favorite pairs of skates, Todd's, just don't even exist anymore. Like uh, the Solomons, the Solomon edit. That did you luck out in some Solomons, by the way, Todd? No. No. What, what size are you? Uh, nine, nine and a half. Oh, okay. Do you have like a really decent stock of blade stuff, <laughs> Jacob? I'm gonna do. Um, I'm going to do a little uh, like documentary edit at some point in the near future where I'll basically just say, like, you know, this is my stockpile. And I'll oh. I want to see it because I know I've lost eBay battles to you before. So <laughs> it's, it's not so much that I'm showing off the stockpile as I'll be telling a whole bunch of stories behind, you know a lot of the hardware I have and a lot of what I liked about it and what I didn't like about it. So people will understand where I'm coming from as far as hardware and design is concerned. And maybe it'll give people a bunch of ideas of their own as well, you know, just try and inspire thought on the uh, subject. Excellent. Is it going to be on your, the Vimeo account, free skating? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I've got a GoPro camera, so I'll pull that out and I'll find a way to, um, to get it done. Yeah, I got to say kudos for um, finally posting something up. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. I'm, and, um... And it was, I'm trying uh, to think of the right way to say this. Okay, yeah, yeah go there's, ahead. There's, there's a part of me that's a pretty private person and that wants to keep certain things to myself. Um, and also, I don't really think of myself as someone who's skating is really entertaining to watch as much as i enjoy doing it i don't think that it's like stuff that could be put on tv or put on video or put in an edit 
that people would really enjoy watching. So there's just a motivation there for me to pretty much keep it to myself. And even the things that I put up on Vimeo, it'll more be for me to, to look at if my style or if my abilities have changed any relative to what hardware that I'm skating at the time. Because what I'd really like to do with the new design I have is to develop it for a certain action of skating rather than developing it you know, for its own sake or for any kind of vanity that it would have. Like bringing out a skate in a different color or bringing out a skate that, you know, oh, we, we made this out of, you know, African rhino horn. None of that makes any difference to me, but if the action of skating is different and if you can do different stuff or enjoy the sensation of skating more, then that's, you know, in my mind, that's an improvement. Yeah, that's something that I think people should focus more on, is really focusing on how, how can we make the experience of rollerblading better, and as opposed to making it look cooler or making it look more fashionable or different colors or less colors or whatever. Just strictly, how can we make rollerblading more fun for people? And one thing I'll say on that subject, and I think I said this in the last podcast I did, was that we really need to face that the reason that all of rollerblading has has died has nothing to do with skateboarding and it has nothing to do with tricks and it has nothing to do with us or aggressive skating or you know us not grabbing our backslides or anything it has nothing to do with <laughs> hey that might have something to do with it it has to do with the fact that people with the skates on their feet couldn't do what they wanted they weren't able to do what they envisioned themselves doing. I think yeah. that the Rollerblade Corporation did a great job in the late 80s and the early 90s of inspiring people to put a pair of skates on. They showed people all these, you know, incredibly fun things that you could do on a pair of skates. Look yeah. what you can do, right? Um, so people ran out and bought the skates, but then they were very disappointed to realize that they could not do all those things that they had imagined and they could not do all those things they really wanted to do and the number of people that i speak to you know just out in everyday life here in america who've owned a pair of rollerblades and that was pretty much the reason they don't do it anymore it's got to make up the vast majority of them they bought a pair they thought they were going to be able to do certain things it didn't work out that way so they don't skate on them anymore yeah so I think that's look at the so hardware and find ways to make that stuff possible. Because when you compare it to something like, say, bicycles, I'm sure there are a lot of people who quit riding bicycles, you know, in the 50s or 60s because they couldn't do what they wanted to do on them. But if you look at the way the hardware is developed today, people who wanted to do those same things could go and buy a bike and do it. Yeah, that's such an important thing. We need to focus on making that first impression of people when they first, you know, they have that initial interest and they decide to put a pair on. We need that experience to be as good as it can be. We need it to have nice, fast wheels, a comfortable boot, and allow them to move in a natural way. It seems to me that a lot of people have that interest and then they go and put on a pair of skates that are anti-rocker with crappy wheels and crappy bearings and they're really restrictive and they feel like a total dork because they're moving their body in such a stupid way and they're going really slow and they're like, this sucks, rollerblading sucks. 
And it does suck for that person. That experience does suck. Maybe if you put them in a in a really nice pair of Solomons with really nice fast bearings and flat rocker, they might have a different experience. So they probably would have a different experience. They obviously would have a different experience. Did you guys see an old uh, Australian video called Crank? Uh, that sounds kind of crank. No, I like, saw a documentary no on a crackhead called Crank. Uh, uh, no more Mr. Nice Guy I've seen and one yeah, love, but Crank the, was their first one. There you go. Spencer Franks, the same guy that made those, made Crank. Um, there was uh, there was these like little documentary interview bits in the video, and I remember one thing that Tom Fry said. I can't remember the exact words, but he was talking about that moment a few weeks or a month or whatever into having a pair of roll blades when it all just clicks and the sensation of you being able to do this and being in control of these skates and having that potential and that ability it just you fall in love with it yeah and he was saying that you know it doesn't happen straight away it doesn't happen as soon as you get a pair of skates but if a person gets to that point where it does happen they're in love. They're one of us, you know, they're a skater. And everyone that I have seen, that I have seen get to that point and really be in love with it, they still think of themselves as a skater today, even if they haven't put on a pair in like five years. And I guess a lot of people didn't get past that point. A lot of people fell over too many times or got ridiculed too many times or whatever. But they never got to that point and they were like, forget it, I'm getting rid of these. And not only do they not skate anymore, they don't even really understand why we still do skate. Yeah. Because it's amazing the number of people you'll speak to, and this happens at the skate parks all the time. You'll speak to someone at the skate park who at first is a little bit wary of you, even though they're like staring at you the whole time. <laughs> they're a little bit wary of you. They don't want to say anything. They're probably off with their mates making jokes or whatever. But get to the end of the session, you know, an hour or two later, and they'll kind of sidle over to you and start a conversation. And you won't get more than a few minutes into the conversation before they let you know that they used to rollerblade. <laughs> happens all the time. And I love it because I can tell that part of them still wants to, but, like, they won't let themselves or something. <laughs> That's funny. It's really the, weird. There's a... Are you... Are, did you lose jake he got super quiet there oh yeah are you still there are you still there can you hear me oh super quiet super quiet all right hang on a sec okay how about now uh your three bars better more how about that a little bit better maybe a little bit more <laughs> there we go okay he's kind of drifting in and out a little bit it's fine I, I, think, going, I think maybe the internet goes into sleep mode or something if I'm not. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. got to like, I've got to move the mouse or something to keep the computer awake. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, going through some of these old tapes, like in Kamloops alone, how many people I forgot out of our group of friends started rollerblading is insane. <laughs> like Todd, Randy Caputo, uh, Dan Finley, Chris Crothers, uh, so many random people skated in that era. Yeah, a lot like it, of people. In the first explosion. And 
I think about that multiplied across cities, even just across North America, there's probably way more people than we would think that aggressive skated. Yeah, it was really big. A lot of kids did it. Um, and that accessibility factor, the getting over looking like a dork the, and the Tom Fry quote, I've never really thought about it that way, but it's so true that there is a point, especially like, you know, if you don't come from ice skating, which I did and I picked it up quicker. Um, he came from a skateboard background, right? Who Tom, did? Tom, Tom Fry? Tom Fry. Uh, yeah. um, it, you really can't deny how good rollerblading feels. It, <laughs> it just feels so good. And in a video, when you're watching something that was just absolutely laced, like how you're talking about Julian Baugh rolling away from a trick in a specific way, or Todd and I talking about, you know, the way Paul John or that Quentin Lamb in it, the way people roll between tricks, like these are the things that really define what rollerblading is. But it's relating it to like the blading cup or some of these things, presenting it to an outside audience, it's just still something that hasn't fully translated to something that can be shared with other people. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that point, but Leon and, and Todd have talked about it quite a bit that the actual like marketing and selling of rollerblades is such a tricky thing <laughs> that how how do you get someone to to try it and love it and not be afraid of being a dork what i don't think there's anything you can do i think the, the amount of media and everything i i think rollerblading is doing a great job of sharing itself and showing people the potential of rollerblading but it's the I think it's the technology that drops the ball. I think when people put them on, they don't, they're not willing to give it a chance to get to that point that Jake's talking about where it clicks and where they really fall in love. They might, they might have a spark of interest, but as soon as they put on a pair, usually it just dies because it's not how they imagine it and it's not how they, they, they look at someone like Paul John or Quentin Lamb rollerblading, they're like, wow, that looks so fun and free. But then they try on a pair and they're like, whoa, like this is nothing like that. That um, free skating in Paris video is like in the millions for hits on YouTube. And it's just, there's not a lot of tricks. It's just a guy bombing through the streets of Paris. And it's from quite a long time ago that some of the viral videos of skating that have gotten a lot of hits are more just straight up skating like the oh my god the the salt mine fakey bomb uh-huh yep that one was incredible and there was no actual trick in it it was just him bombing a salt mine and that went viral like yeah, yeah. there's uh there's still kind of a fear of the just strictly skating showing just skating which is weird that like power blading and the big wheel movement yeah. i understand that, like that, people, that's, that's kind of part of it's it's part of that old storyline, that idea of that idea that Senate was pushing in like '93. You know, we're not hockey skaters, we're not rec skaters, so you have to hate all those things that they are. You know, you have to differentiate yourself from them by not doing what they do. And I mean, you'd be amazed how much. <laughs> be amazed how much crap i've gotten over the years even for wanting to skate like 62s flat oh my god you want to skate 62s flat and oh dude are you a rec skater 
<laughs> that is the most retarded part about this whole invisible rollerblading culture and all these stupid fucking rules about grabbing backslides. Like, I was like, oh, I don't want to skate a frame that has like a 250 millimeter wheelbase. That would be like being on skis. And it's like, oh. uh, actually, no, skis are about a meter and a half or two meters long. And there's there's no getting over that, that storyline, though, of you can't wear pads, you can't wear shorts, you can't wear a helmet. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you can't use wheels bigger than 56, 58, whatever. Care, careful with like, Mizus. You can't skate flat. All these things make you a wreck skater. Like, all these things make you not one of us. <laughs> and, yeah, you're right. It must have been very hard for for Power Slide to commit to actually doing what they're doing with Power Blading because they must have expected a backlash. Oh, no one's going to think that you know, skating on 80s flat can be made cool. Oh, it's all the same thing. Yeah. Why is it still the same story? It's funny, though, that you say it's all the same thing because we still haven't solved that problem of making a skate that rolls good and grinds good. Yeah. You're right. It's still one or the other. And you can try and get half of each, but you can't have both. <laughs> it's so true. It shouldn't be shouldn't be that hard i think a big thing i think a big thing is tr that people don't talk about much is trying to get the wheels as close to the foot as we can like people talk about having a bigger wheel um but there is something to be said about being closer to the ground like i sometimes feel like i have more control with a smaller wheel but it's just because i've got a lower I'm lower to the ground. I think if you could focus on getting the wheels as close to the foot as you could, then you could have a bigger wheel, but still be closer to the ground and have that, that same feeling of control that you have on a smaller wheel. Fuck yeah. Well, here's, here's the problem there. As far as I see it, um, the simplest way of stating the problem is you've got a very small space in which you're trying to fit three things. You're trying to fit the wheels, you're trying to fit the thing that you're grinding on, and you're trying to fit your foot. All of those three things, you're trying to occupy the same space. I need my foot closer to the rail, I need the rail closer to my foot, I need the wheels, you know, I need my foot closer to the ground. So you're squashing all these things in there. Um, one of them's got to give, one of them's got to be compromised to make up for the other. Um, the one that I think skaters would be most happy with being compromised like in this day and age is pushing the groove lower because people's soles and especially the sole where the where the boot touches where the backslide touches are so much wider today than what they ever were that if your groove is close to the boot your skate is on the tiniest tiniest angle doing royales and doing talks it looks terrible yeah so if you were to push the groove lower to the to the ground, away from the boot, you still get a decent angle when you're doing royales, when you're doing talks, and you're creating more space to fit the wheels closer together and to fit your foot closer down. I, um, I love, the, love the, the groove on volos for that, but anyways, go ahead. Which which companies are doing this properly? I think a few of the the smaller frame companies, the smaller startups, are finding ways to do that now. 
they're saying let's make the wheels bigger and rather than stretching the wheelbase out let's push the groove down a little bit lower yeah and hopefully wrap it around the wheels enough that we're still not going to get wheel bite you know on anything square or on anything that's made out of cement yeah but that's oversimplifying the problem you still have the ufs mounts to get around you still have the fact that a skater who's in a size six or seven boot wants to be on a frame with a wheelbase of about 230 235. so then if, if you if you rewrite <laughs> everything into, into one space yeah um so but if you totally for, forget about grinding um and then you forget about ufs and you and you think of it it's a totally blank canvas how can we attach the frame to this boot or or whatever it's a shoe or whatever there there has to be ways to get those wheels closer to the feet whether it's a thinner liner a thinner boot um maybe the the ufs bolts don't go shooting into the foot the way they do i mean like there there has to be a way to get wheels closer to the feet um most i mean even before ufs most of the companies were mounting the frames to the boots with some with some kind of rigid mount or some kind of bolt some kind of hardware between the wheel pairs between the front and the rear wheel pair i don't think that any of them were quite as close together as what ufs is um you'd have to be in a pretty small pair of like style points bobs for those uh brass threaded mounts to only be like 167 millimeters apart um and the rosies the fifth elements they were huge the 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 distance between those mounting bolts and the distance between the middle wheels especially on the bigger sizes of fifth elements it was it was huge yeah um i like the way that solomon were incorporating the 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 sole wings into the frame and moving the mounts outside of the frame channel so they could put the wheels wherever they wanted How, where did they put the the bolts um well the the sole wings were incorporated into the frame and you were using like smaller allen bolts on like the sole and the negative you know wings to hold the frame to the boot so you didn't actually have any bolts running down the center line of the frame where you would want to put the wheels oh yeah right yeah you're right that was that pre-ufs solomon right yes and um k2 soul frame you can't fuck with those either <laughs> but they the way they attached to the boot though they did still have bolts on the center line inside the frame channel so you're right. You're right. theoretically, if you were going to re-drill the wheel holes, you know, the axle holes in a in a old K2 sole frame, you still had to worry about those things. Yeah. That... What if there was a a cosmetic surgery that we could get where we could like drill holes into our feet that the bolts could go through? You you said you wouldn't want to get that done, Todd. In Paris, right? What's that? You've seen American Werewolf in Paris? No. I think that would be awesome if we just under, underwent this mutation where, like, the bones, you know, burst through the, 
the the front and back of the skin and your feet and, and wheels just attached to them like Ghost Rider. Yeah. That's uh, I wrote a script in film school based on that. And like that way you couldn't take them off, you know. So when you got busted, you could just like you know tear the guy apart Wolfman style because you wouldn't be able to take them off anyway. I think, yeah, that, I think that it's a great it's metaphor, a great metaphor, metaphor for, um, for uh, ex- existing, <laughs> existing as loving rollerblading on the planet. On the planet. <laughs> if the wheels were physically stuck to your feet all the time. Yeah. It would be great. Um, okay, so WRS edit battle. Um, Todd and I, we didn't talk about this at all, did we, Todd? Not, no, no, we didn't. Um, I don't, I, apart from me really enjoying some of the skating and it being a really interesting way to have a competition, um, I didn't get into the whole drama of the, the clicking, although I, I loved that it was 50-50 for so long between Sizemore and the one dude, but um, did you have any thoughts about that, Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I laughed my ass off for like a week straight. Was how awesome that uh, that uh, whole deal was. The drama surrounding all of it. I mean, I haven't been a big fan of the WRS since they got started because um, it's not a fair, unbiased organization. Right from the beginning, it's not. And anyone who was paying attention to how it formed, which was very easy to do because they were up front and press released the whole thing, it's run by the boot companies. Right? Yeah. And they're doing it for the purpose of selling skates. And they not only want to sell skates to all of us that are paying attention, but they want to sell skates to other people that aren't paying attention yet. So they're basically recruiting us for free to go out and bring other people to them to pay them money for skates. And that's all that is. I I wouldn't be surprised if the whole voting thing was just an entire sham and they just keep it at 50-50 to troll all rollerbladers into being like, oh, 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 and get <laughs> and freaking out and, oh, this is, a, this is an injustice. You know? <laughs> oh, Some people really got into it. Really, really, really got into it. I saw like the first day that Sizemore's edit got posted, my whole Facebook newsfeed was just plastered with like, "Vote for David! This edit's amazing! You have to vote for David!" It took him like five days for people to be like, "Hmm." Now that I think about it, the problem is that rollerblading is subjective these days. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Like, where have you been for the last 20 years? <laughs> what the, the best skater's not winning. The most popular skater's winning. We need to fix this problem right now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Man. That's why um, Popularity Contest was a good name. Before I start getting death threats from uh, from David Sizemore's fans, <laughs> <laughs> the edit was awesome. Yeah. Well, his edit was incredible. I has been awesome for years, and this is the point I want to make. All you guys that are standing up for David Sizemore now, 
Where were you when the fake rain edit came out? Where were you when he was wearing orange pants? All you guys were hating on him then. Yeah. He's been this good all this time. Yeah. Well, he's got he's got the right the right song now, and the helmet's gone. Um, He's you know he's dressed a little bit closer to what's acceptable. He's obeying black pants. I liked him better when he wasn't obeying the rules, you know. (laughs) He his tricks uh, in the one video I remember stood out big time, and he would always kill the contest. That that is kind of funny, hey. That he's been placing at contests for the longest time. He just needed to fit the image a little bit more. Yeah. So do you think if he would have it's done that... The same, the same thing was the deal... Well, I, I can see the same thing happening to some extent with the footage of Matthew Ledeau. It's like, I liked you better when you were in the tank top in the skate park doing like, you know, monkey tricks kind of thing. And I'm, I'm not saying that to mock. I loved that. And when you start dressing and acting and presenting your skating in a way that is closer to the mainstream, I don't want to see that anymore. I wanted to see the way out in left field stuff, you know. I got to see a Woodward contest, uh, like AIL contest. This must have been like four years ago now, four or five years ago. And David Sizemore was there and he killed it. And some of the tricks he was doing were way out in left field, like not even, not even close to being considered cool. But you would watch the trick and be like, oh my God, did he really just do that? And that's the stuff that I would really get excited about. Even that picture they put in one a while ago where he was standing up on the the uh, the parking thing, like 12 feet off the ground, and he did like the drop fish brain. Oh God, that was amazing. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. And it, the, guy, the guy took the photo, whoever it was, you're a legend, the guy took the photo at the perfect moment. Because David is so committed to that trick. All, all his weight, all of it, it's locked on. Like, his knee is below the skate that's doing the fish brain, is how committed he is. And he's still giving it 100%. And you look at it and you're like, who else would even think of that? Let alone, like, get up there and do it. And that's the kind of stuff I want to see. So when you trade that for, like, tricks that are closer to what we expect of people doesn't do it for me anymore but everyone's like oh his his style has evolved now (laughs) (laughs) it's refined his his skating now and i'm thinking i looked it better when it was raw and unrefined you know do you think uh like if he had brightly colored clothes and a helmet and a and a song that wasn't fitting in with what currently fits into rollerblading do you think maybe he wouldn't have had all the supporters it's not even just that. I think that the way that the edit was put together, um, I mean, whoever filmed it obviously knows exactly what they're doing. Oh, all, the uh, ang- uh, all the angles were Nemoroski. Perfect. Nemo, you did a great job. All the angles were great. Um, you got to see everything that you needed to see. Like when he does the spin and lands like, uh, like negative mistrial, you know, and it's, it's slowed down at the right moment. The camera's focused in the right spot. All that. Perfect. Even the order of tricks, you know, the way they're put together in the edit, they could be put together in a different way and it wouldn't be as entertaining as it is. Yeah. So a lot of credit has to go to that guy too. And that's something that we don't really think much about as far as the WRS contest is concerned. 
it's kind of a 50-50 thing, you know, the skater puts in 50%, but the guy doing the filming and the editing puts in 50% as well. Yeah. And if you don't have, if, if you're the best skater in the world, but you don't have someone who can film that and edit that in the right way, you're not going to win the contest. No. Fuck, yeah. That came up so, a lot yesterday for us when we were talking about the, the filmer-skater relationship, yeah. So, I, I don't know much about this guy, Nemirovsky, but if he and David Sizemore are friends and he knows him well and he knows what to expect and he knows how to get the most out of his skating, that's great, you know. When I was living in Phoenix, uh, John Jenkins would do a really good job of that too with a bunch of skaters. He would know them personally. He would know what to expect of them, but he could push them, you know, in the right place in the right time as well. And when you would see like John Jenkins footage of a skater, you'd be like, wow, I didn't know he could do that. And John was like, well, yeah, that's, you know. <laughs> yeah. He would, I'm, I'm not saying he would blow his own horn, but I could tell that that's what he was doing. Because of that relationship that he had with the skaters, he was getting the most out of them. And if it had been me out there with the camera, it would have just been terrible, you know. It wouldn't have been any good at all, no matter how good a skater they were. Uh, Richie and Dustin have done some oh, great perfect. stuff together. Everything those guys have done in the last year or two, perfect. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, filmer-skater relationship. Okay, so I wrote down... The, the term... Hold on, hold on. Okay. The question that comes up a lot. If I had to show a person on edit to kind of, you know, give them what skating's about or give them the best impression of it, that, uh, that Freddy in Wonderland edit that, um, that uh, Richie put together, it's incredible. Yeah, that one's more under the radar, hey? Because it wasn't a really well-known skater. And yet, um, guy is so talented in so many different aspects of skating. I mean, you get through, you get through him doing lines through the street. You get through a lot of the, the just the, you know, ledge tricks and the technical stuff. You get to the end where he's in like the the indoor wooden park, and all of it is filmed and edited the way it's presented. It's perfect. Um, there's a really long line in that too that really sticks out. And that's one thing I'd love to see from the whole uh, power blading movement. The hardware is different. You have all of this potential and all these possibilities. And yet they're still filming and editing in the same way. They're still presenting it in the same way. But now you've got the, the ability for someone to do a line that lasts like two minutes, three minutes and be hitting tricks the whole time. You've got the potential to have someone skating through sections like three four times faster than what they were on their other skates start filming it and presenting it in a different way i know they did that a little bit with the sketching behind the cabs and stuff in barcelona yeah there's way way more to it as far as the way that the person doing the filming and doing the editing is thinking about how they're going to present this and how they're going to put it out um i mean the i know we go back to airborne a lot but you can even watch a lot of the, a lot of the way the action scenes in Airborne are filmed, and see really impressive elements of skating that you can't see anywhere in a lot of what's filmed today. Absolutely. I I don't think I've seen anything that um, has been presented in the style of of Airborne. I I actually said that on the podcast yesterday. The scene where he gets his skates and goes out for a skate is still an amazing display of how fun skating is. 
a lot of the the the, the devil's backbone scene and I'm not even talking the carving the hills I'm talking like when they get down to that bridge that goes across the train lines yeah with like the double stair set how how does Edwards get down that double stair set so quickly and not die <laughs> that like, is a really any, good scene anyone else anyone else would be dead you watch <laughs> it, you're like there's no way I could even do that there's no way you're right and power blading uh that is what power blading has the potential to be. And when I see a power blading edit of dudes like hitting a knee high ledge at five miles an hour, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Like I, I can grind in my skates. I don't need to spend a couple of hundred bucks on a different pair of skates to grind. What I can't do is go around corners at 40 miles an hour without dying. So show me that on your power blades and I'll go buy a pair. <laughs> Not dying is really important. I, I think what you said about uh, long lines, it's still something that you don't see as much of. I, I would love to see like a full video of some of the best rollerbladers doing really long lines that maybe aren't particularly planned out. Just using their skills and whatever comes up in front of them doing tricks, you know, like to see Brascow or Farmer really just doing like like a three minute line that isn't super choreographed. There was um there was the one that Dustin did at the end of Brain Fear Gone. Um it it's not it's not very quick though. Like, you know, I mean he's rolling around a school or something and he's moving pretty slowly. I'd love to see something similar at speed. Yeah. Yeah, what did you think about um the there was the Tom Heiser interview and he said that the Asian X Games footage looked like it was in slow motion compared to the other sports. And I, I posted the quote, and there were some really angry people that <laughs> got really mad that I posted the quote. <laughs> well, it's, it's partly because we don't get a lot of access to those courses anymore. And partly, like I said, our top pros just aren't going to make money by focusing on that style of skating. Yeah. Um, but again, if you look at a place like uh, like Woodward, for example, the, the BMX riders especially have always used Woodward very kind of seriously or very intensely as far as training and developing new skills and new talents. And I know there's an aspect of rollerblading who would be like, oh, you know, we're not going to train. But what they're able to do on a bike today compared to even like, you know, let's say 20 years ago when Matt Hoffman had already done a lot of crazy stuff. What they're doing today is insane. It really is insane. And they've certainly focused more on transition riding, partly because, you know, there's a lot more enjoyment to get out of that style of riding on a bike compared to just grinding ledges and stuff. But I would agree entirely. I didn't really see any of the, the skateboarding footage or the, or the bike footage from that contest. But I did see the rollerblading footage, and I thought the same thing. These guys are on a park that's developed for big speed and big aerial tricks, you know, transition tricks. But none of them can really do any. I mean, I think I, I think I saw Haffy throw like a really big 720 on a slightly undervert wall at that contest. I hope I'm remembering the right one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, and it that's was, the room. And it was big. He went really high, spun the seven. But even just watching that, you're thinking you, you're, probably, you're probably not in form on transition good enough that you could have done that on a vert quarter pipe that same size. Yeah. 
like doing a 720, you know, seven feet, eight feet out of a vert quarter pipe, there's a hundred ways to die. <laughs> so many ways for that trick to go wrong, you know. Fuck quarter pipes are dangerous. <laughs> it's not that I... quarter pipes are dangerous, it's that vert is dangerous if all you do is skate straight. Yeah, if you don't know what you're doing. A lot of vert skaters get to the point where it's not dangerous at all because they're so used to it and they're so used to missing tricks and falling on it. Yeah. If like it's it's very safe for them when when they're so used to it. I think that's what helped out a lot of the Australian skaters back in the day was that especially if you were from Sydney or Melbourne, you pretty much came up doing both. You did vert and street and little skate parks just all together as if it was the one thing. Yeah. So those guys learned the difference between what to do on street and what to do on vert when they'd only been skating like, you know, a few months. But if you've been like a, a street skater and especially like an elite level street skater for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and you go and try and uh, transfer that across to vert, it's not, it's not going to work. <laughs> like when I moved to Sydney, I got the chance to skate with um, a couple of the guys that were in the ASA then, like Sessa and Matt Salerno. And they said to me, don't try and learn any tricks for like the first six months, for like the first year. You know, we know you can do all that stuff on street, but just learn how to get, skate the ramp. Just learn how to flow the ramp back and forwards. And it, once you've learned that, you'll bring all your tricks across in like a day. Yeah. But you've got to learn to skate the ramp first. If you come here thinking this is a launch box and you try and do, you know, your 540 or your 720 or whatever, you're going to die. Yeah. God damn it, Vert. So scary. <laughs> Todd, do you think you'd have anything on a Vert ramp? No. <laughs> I'd be stoked if I could drop in. Yeah, me I too. I think I could drop in, maybe do like a really shitty, maybe soul, the coping. Maybe, but probably not. Come, what about coming back in fakey from the soul? No. Fuck <laughs> no. See, here's, here's the funny thing, though. It's really easy. It's just the opposite of what you're supposed to do on street. Yeah. It's really easy. The problem is, let's say you've skated a lot of launch box, right? You pump the transition at a certain position, and you pop at you know the quarter or at the lip in a certain way to get the right amount of air to do the trick. And all these guys that do that, they know, oh, if I'm coming into the quarter you know, a little slower, I won't pop as much, so I'll still make the landing. Or if I'm coming into the quarter a bit too fast, I need to pump extra hard at the beginning, and I'm going to go a lot higher than what I intended, but I'll still land in the right place. You can't take any of that to vert because none of it works on vert. But yeah. the way that it does work on vert, it isn't hard. It's not rocket science. It's just different. Just different. Very different. Yeah. And it becomes harder the longer that you've been street skating. Yeah. Like it's easier for a guy who's been on rollerblades for six months to learn how to skate vert than it is for like our top street skating professionals to learn how to skate vert. Because they have to unlearn what they've been doing on street and on park for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've got to get I've got to get going, guys. Okay. So you guys can keep talking. Yeah, we'll finish it off right here. Thanks, Todd. Cool. Hey, thanks, Jake. It was really interesting. Hey, later, Todd. Yeah, see you, Joey. Later. Okay, we got a couple minutes here. 
Um, you know who was amazing at doing everything? Oh, hello. Hello? Can you hear me? Hello, hello? I can hear you. Oh, you're you're low. Your volume's low again. Where's the mouse? I'm back. It's at one. Like it's barely <laughs> even at zero. Oh, a little bit better. Alright, who was really good? Oh, um I did I bring up Tim Ward already on a podcast? Uh, I don't think so. Um he I did not appreciate his vert skating until years later when I rewatched uh, VG6. Uh-huh. He's, can, I, he has done some stuff that I had still haven't seen some people do uh-huh. on vert. Um, yeah. And that's another Australian. What, so Australians... If we, start, if we start talking about tricks Tim Ward has done, we're going to be here all night, mate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He was, uh, did you know he was Shane Coburn's favorite skater of all time? Um, yeah, I think he might have mentioned that to me once. Um, I, I guess he, that was in, like in a magazine or whatever, and that was something that I thought was so interesting because he, in terms of what Shane Coburn did picking skaters in his first company, it kind of related to Tim Ward being his favorite skater a little bit. For a diver- uh, diverse skill set. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Um, okay, what? Oh, we have one one more topic before we go. I'm not breaking up, am I? No, you're good. Okay, um, the word uh, foolhardy and the word consumer. <laughs> what? Uh, I, can't, I can't even remember what this was in uh, response to. But yeah. I, I, it's a, it's an idiom that I use from time to time, I guess. So is this related to any specific, like Jado 2.0 or what? Are we... um, I, I don't know. I can't remember how I brought it up. Um... What, what it means, what it means to me is people who don't know the difference between what they want and what they've been sold. company can make you want something bad enough by you know using marketing that that you think that you wanted it beforehand yeah like you think they have you think that you had a problem and that here's the solution and you don't realize that they actually created the problem and they're the ones that made you want it. oh my god tell me about it i went from gray and black rems to shima cyrus's in old footage I was, a, I, was a, I was a tool of, of like, sorry, sorry, I was a victim of rollerblading marketing many times. And um, there's that uh, there's that interview that uh, Chris Mitchell did with, uh, I guess, with One Magazine. And Chris Mitchell's a guy I have a lot of respect for as far as his opinion and his uh, understanding is concerned because, I mean, he's been around since before when most of us think of as the beginning of rollerblading yeah yeah he, he'd been in it forever so and he's seen it from from inside out from every angle and he says that's the first thing you got to realize when you look at rollerblading and anything about it that's the first thing you got to realize that it's all it is we compare ourselves to skateboarding or to bmx or whatever but all of those were activities first with industries second so rounding it out here, who invented the inline skate? I should know this. <laughs> I I don't know, uh, but 
but I, I can tell you quite confidently that it was not invented in the 80s by the Rollerblade Corporation or by Scott Olson. And it wasn't John <laughs> Joseph Merlin or Plimpton. Oh, maybe. I don't know. You can, you can go on eBay right now, and there's a guy selling a pair of inline skates from the 1940s, and he wants $1,100 for them. Shit. Did you bid? Uh, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm going to see if he lowers the reserve. You know? <laughs> and uh, what kind so of... It's funny, you, you look at them and they actually they actually look pretty good. I mean, you, you can look at them and picture yourself with them on rolling down the street. So What kind of wheels? Um, like casters that you would see on, uh, you know, in a factory or something. Oh, okay, okay. They're probably, they're probably made out of metal or something. How do you know they're authentic? Well... Obviously, obviously weren't made in the 80s, I'll tell you that much. Oh, okay. Unless, unless they're like the first Kaiser prototypes. <laughs> What's the boot like on those? They don't have a boot, bro. Oh, it's, it's just the frame. Shadows. Oh, you, the strap on? They're, they're, they're shadows, yep. You've got leather straps there. Holy shit. Um, what do you think of that idea of like uh, possibly skating the Shadow 2.0 without cuffs and modifying the base. Do you think that that's possible? When you say modifying the base, how are you going to modify the base? You would have to just make some cuts on the plastic so it wouldn't dig into the shoe. All right. Because um, um, I don't know if you've seen a picture of the base without the, the cuff on it. it uh, not, of, not of the twos I haven't. I mean, I have a mental picture of what that would look like on the, on the Shadow 1s. Yeah. I like I think it could work really really well cuz if you were to skin a pair of rems mm-hmm. um remedies even how the the base was really really stiff plastic all around the heel cup and then it was two thinner pieces of plastic that just kind of come up on the side to support the ankle right okay don't you think that you could eventually make a mod of like a heel cup for a shadow that could kind of mimic the remedy cuff. Um, I don't know that the cuff is the only uh, structural. Well, I don't know that the cuff is the only form of heel support on the first remedies. I think the way that you lace the leather up. You know, I mean, you know, keeping those laced up tight makes a difference as well. Yeah. I know a lot of skaters didn't lace them all the way up or didn't lace them up tight, but I would guess that that's part of the design. Yeah, yeah. You're supposed to keep them laced up tight. Yeah. Um, if If you don't have anything structural there providing the ankle support, you're either going to need to get the ankle support some other way or you're going to need to be very, very careful with what you skate and how you skate it. Yeah, and that's where there's potential for something to be interesting. So, I might, I might try that. I might try the, that. Your, your foot, either, either barefooted or in a standard shoe, it's not used to dealing with, well, your foot, your ankle, is not used to dealing with the kind of leverage that you can put on it once you have wheeled skates. Yeah. It's kind of the same as uh, women in high heel shoes, right? Oh, they yeah. Can, they can destroy their ankles because if they put their weight down wrong, 
the shoe is providing all this leverage that the you know the three inch heel or whatever is going to put on the ankle that their ankles aren't developed to handle at all so another feminine connection to yes. inline skating long long story long story short if you're skating just like casual gentle stuff and you're in full control of it not a problem at all and you're going to love the feeling of it but if you're you know trying to skate rails jump downstairs any of that kind of stuff i'd say it's pretty dangerous what's your preference for ankle support of every experiment that you've tried with with cuffs like um, does it vary from what you're skating like from ver like a like something like hill bombing would you want something with a little bit more freedom yeah and you can get away with it if you know that you're going to be on like a smooth level surface yeah you know i mean we've been skating long enough that we've got the talent to not run into that kind of trouble on flat ground you know you're, yeah. you're not going to destroy your ankle but like i said if you're trying to do a lot of the tricks and stuff like if you're if you're skating like a you know a 12 stair or a 16 stair rail or something and you didn't lock on right and you need to come off halfway down land on the stairs you're you're in a bit of trouble yeah, <laughs> yeah. but in skateboarding do they jump off of their board I guess people fuck their ankles up all the time in skateboarding. I, I assume they, yeah, the guys that are going fast and doing the big stuff, I assume that they destroy them all the time. Yeah, wow. Um, the skates, skates that, what, what was that? It's the skates I enjoyed the most, or the skates I really, really felt the best in, probably King 55s. Still, to this day, is the, yeah. the best well, combination? I remember the first time I put a pair of Remedies on and was like skating a ball with you know a flat setup and the sensation of that was incredible you just had so much control and really like accurate really like like fine control over where you were yeah you know? it was like the difference between driving a sports car and driving a bus <laughs> like you could you could put them exactly where you wanted to be all the time and you didn't even have to try you just had to think about it and it would happen that way but you would still prefer the King 55 over the Remedies? I think, yeah. And is that... I never, I never skated Remedies in one stretch for the same length of time as I skated King 55s. And um, have you stockpiled some King 55s? Um, stockpiled, no. <laughs> I, I, got, I got lucky and got two pairs uh, around at the same time in about 2004. And they probably lasted me until about 07 or 08. Because the cuff structure would eventually flex out too much? Um, not so much that. Like just falling and wearing down the edges of the soles and yeah. starting to like tear into the edges of the soft boot and stuff oh, like okay. that. Okay, yeah. Um, and by that time, I was probably experimenting with a bunch of different hardware as well. So that motivated me to get off pre-UFS skates yeah, yeah. Um, um, but although I own a pair of like the old school remedies there's never been a time where they've been my one pair of skates that I've skated all the time for like six months or a year or whatever straight yeah the setup that you had in the video that you posted uh -huh. was that a modified shadow no just uh, just the, the first shadow boots yeah 
and then just like the the rollerblade fusion uh, bottom end. Okay. So and it's like a ninety millimeter flat UFS frame. And then do you just have your own shoes, or did you have foot wraps? I can't remember. You had your own like Adidas shoes or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what they're called, but I've got like an old pair of Adidas shoes that are like driving shoes. Yeah. And they don't have laces on, which is really good. So like the instep strap doesn't dig in or anything. You would recommend those to someone? Adidas driving shoes? I don't know if you can buy them anymore. The same ones I've got. But uh, yeah, they work really good. Awesome. And you said you were going to experiment with the dupe skate, possibly? Well, I've got got an old pair of... uh, I think Rossi's made them as like samples. So it's like an old Rossi skate that has a, a, a five wheel frame on it. So they're like, they're like 84 millimeter wheels. Yeah. And I really want to experiment with them downhill as well. But the way that I do this, it's just so much easier with the shadow boots that you can step in and out of. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't want to have to carry anything with me. I don't have to carry a backpack with me. And I can't really get to the top of the hill barefoot <laughs> without without attracting attention yeah yeah i've done that that sounds i know that sounds like a weird thing to say but i I guess i've kind of moved to pleasantville in that respect oh (laughs) there are certain things that just aren't appropriate in this town one of them being rollerblading from the top of the hill to the bottom but i'm gonna do it anyway i just need to try and do it in the the subtlest most discreet way possible yeah i rewound actually the you had a discussion it was a cool moment the dude in the truck uh huh. Yeah. What was that? I tried to hear what he said at first. Well, I actually went flying past that guy where the where the four way stop is. Yeah. And you can probably tell by the look on my face coming into that four way stop. It's a little bit nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I can control myself on a pair of skates somewhat, but you can't control what car drivers are or are not going to do. Yeah. So you kind of have to run the gauntlet and hope for the best sometimes (laughs) and he stopped so i thanked him for stopping when he caught up to me later but it was just really weird because you can probably see in the video every once in a while i look back over my shoulder you know just to see if there's any cars that are close or cars that are going to want me to move out of the way in the near future and i kept seeing him in that truck and i'm like is that guy is that guy chasing me (laughs) (laughs) that was such a cool moment that i think those uh talking about like filming longer runs on skates that's one of those moments that is beautiful when you get it on film right it really captured like the feel of the day the worst thing is um i had to i had to cut it i had to cut the the clip in a couple of places to try and get it down under 500 megabytes so i could put it up on vimeo oh because they wouldn't let me put like the whole clip up well, you can, I think, if you compress it into a smaller thing, or if you do Vimeo Plus, you can do oh, up yeah, to uh, a gig, I think. I didn't, I didn't do any of those things. So oh. I didn't cut out anything that's like interesting or worthwhile, but I think it still kind of loses something in the fact that you're not there all the way from start to finish in like one unbroken uh, clip. I think those are going to be more important long uncut clips as we go on since our attention span gets so short. And especially if skaters better than me can actually make them like, you know, interesting and with a lot of like skills and stuff in there. I mean, I don't do, I don't do any tricks. I don't do anything in the clip I did, but. But I think the beauty of you posting that is you have a viewpoint of skating and that video presented skating in a way that might inspire others, 
and that's why it's great that you finally posted some stuff. Well, one one thing that a friend said to me was that uh, he he hadn't seen he hadn't seen a, a rollerblading edit or a rollerblading clip in a while where someone was having so much fun. <laughs> and I, I took that as a huge huge compliment. <laughs> that's probably the biggest. But I compliment. think he was just saying that because maybe he hasn't seen me have that much fun in a long time. <laughs> well, it's both good then. A lot of people know me as a very somber, scowling, cynical guy, and in a lot of ways I am, but that all changes on the skates. So. Perfect. Well, <laughs> what can we expect for future? When's your next video going to be put up? Um, I'm, I'm waiting on some parts. Yeah. It's really, really hard to get samples of anything, especially samples in metric measurements in the US. But it's also really, really hard to deal with companies overseas when all you want to purchase is a sample of hardware in metric measurement. <laughs> so when, whenever you find a supplier who's willing to send you like, you know, 50 of something rather than like, you know, 10,000 of something, yeah, it's always like winning the lotto. <laughs> <laughs> so you have found that? Yeah, yeah, well, it won't be the last time I'll need it, but yeah. Um, so, so, so you get to progress one more step in your R&D because you actually have now the hardware that you needed all this time that no one was going to make for you or give to you without sending you an invoice for you know, $10,000. So we can expect something that might have some type of a new frame eventually in one of your videos? Could you have a lousier poker face? I, I know you want to see it. I know you want to skate it. I, I want that to happen. <laughs> this is kind of what I meant about foolhardy consumers. I can't, I can't go to a shop and buy it and like give it to you. It's not <laughs> going to happen overnight. I'm sorry. But will we see hints of something in a video? The, the reason for me uploading the first video is, yes, I would like to put up a series of videos where hopefully I can look at them and maybe other skaters can look at them too and see that the action and the experience of skating on these different uh, hardware setups actually makes them a different experience. Are, are you going to so, do one uh, in, in MOOCs downhill? <laughs> yeah, Higgs bosons front and back. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm going to invent some round wheels and we'll, we'll try that one and see if it's any better. <laughs> Roller balls. <laughs> Shit. Okay, well, that's a good note to end it on. Um, right. Keeping I'll, people um, guessing. Last thing I'll say, I'll, I'll post an edit on your, uh, on your wall. It's a skateboarding edit, but it's one I remember from a long time ago where the guy basically filmed the whole thing in one cut. And I think you'll appreciate it. Shit. Shit. I'm excited. excited. Well, thank you once again, Jacob. And hopefully we didn't hurt too many feelings out there. <laughs> you're the one getting the hate mail bro not me <laughs> true true okay take it easy all right bye bye